Hello, welcome again to Sports Unlocked. As ever, if you hit subscribe, we land in your feed automatically. Joining me, Rob Harris from Sky News as ever, Martin Ziegler from The Times and Tarek Panja from The New York Times. And we have been away slightly, a bit of a winter break for the pod because we've been obviously some of the Southern Hemisphere down in Australia at the Women's World Cup. Yeah, uh, strange to have a summer in winter for us, Rob, but uh, fair to say the Australian summer is not as unkind as the European one. Now, quite good weather there and so much sport going on, of course, beyond the World Cup as it was going on with AFL and all the rugby as well. It really is a quite a sporting nation. Sorry that you missed out on it, Martin. No, um, relieved I didn't have to have that uh, 24 hour flight, guys. But you, uh, you seem to be sort of arriving fresh, ready to work after your, uh, your long journeys. You, was it, how was it out there from a, a work point of view? I mean, it was a really great tournament, I would say. Obviously, we're going to get onto the the major issues from the fallout from the final, but the atmosphere, the fan zones were absolutely packed, particularly with a lot of the the expats in the country, whether it's Colombians, Japanese fans, uh, various European teams, so well supported that the energy beyond the stadiums was just was transformational. Because in France in 2019, you couldn't actually even watch games in the fan zones. Yeah, it was a really good tournament from from that perspective. And also, as you mentioned earlier, it's a massive sporting country. And this tournament was taking place against full seasons for the AFL, which is enormous. To me, it felt almost as big as, if not bigger than the NFL, in terms of how much attention it grabs in in that one country. Rugby league was going on. And um, there was the Australia-New Zealand rugby test as well. And still, I think by the end of the the winter, you could say that the Women's World Cup was the biggest thing that took place there. Particularly because Australia is not a football soccer nation and it's not about can women's football get attention, it was can football become the national talking point and throughout the month or so, the elevated status because of the Matildas will probably be something that does linger in terms of how football is now seen in Australia. There is a plan to bid potentially for the 2034 Men's World Cup, even the 2029 Men's Club World Cup as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, probably the men's game has probably got a lot further to go because the Matildas are obviously one of the top nations in the world in terms of women's football. Men's football, it's, yes, they, they have qualified for World Cups recently, but it, it, they aren't one of the top nations. They're not going to be challenging for World Cup. So I think in terms of the uh, profile of football, soccer in Australia, they still, in a way, it's easier for the women to get that sort of profile, more difficult for the men. But the one blot on all this is the celebration of a month of women's football, the celebration of Spain winning their first Women's World Cup, beating England in the final, completely overshadowed by the actions of the Spanish FA President Luis Rubiales, that kiss, that Jenny Hermoso says was non-consensual on the podium as they're about to get the trophy. An incredible turn of events over the course of the week with his partial statement, then defiance to hang on to power when he thought it was he was going to quit, but then he actually vows to fight on, starts to attack Hermoso in public with the statement, calling her a liar, threatening legal action, of course, leading to his suspension from world football for 90 days pending the outcome of this FIFA case as we record at this moment he's yet to actually reside from his position despite outcry and this turning into something far bigger in Spain with protests in the streets 
Yeah, it's not just the the, the kiss. Um, there was his behavior standing in in the in the box where he was like thrust thrusting his crotch out and um, then sort of jumping on Hermoso as well. It, it it didn't look good. Everyone thinks everyone knows it looks very inappropriate. Um, but but his sort of insistence on hanging on to power. Um, he seems a very sort of stubborn character. You know, we've all known him for some time. I wouldn't say he's been the sort of most approachable football executive at all. He's always, always come across, to me anyway, as a, as a little bit arrogant. Um, so you can see why he might be defiant. I'm going to hang on. I mean, he, he's UEFA vice president as well. Um, but, I, I mean, I think whatever happens, his, his career in football administration must surely be over. And that's one to get on to how the governing bodies have reacted. But just on Rubiales alone, beyond obviously the initial kiss on the podium, it's that tone of his statements through the Federation that really exacerbated things. Because as we try and catch up now on the frenzy of events, he was initially investigated by FIFA. He was able to continue in the post. It was two days later on the Saturday after the statements that they decided to act and to suspend him really attempt to undermine the investigation to in, to interfere with it in some way to it was quite threatening against the the victim yeah i think from him from the outset that sense of entitlement that i'm not going anywhere you can't do anything for me i've done nothing wrong and it sort of broader questions in spain now about you know, sexism, this macho culture, power dynamics between powerful men and, and women. And there's a big, big sort of debate as a result of this. The thing is, it could have been prevent. All of this could have prevent been prevented. This is something that happened in a moment. These two bizarre things this man did. It was after Spain won a historic World Cup. Emotions are high. Done this thing. What he could have apologised immediately for his actions. But no, what we've seen is not, not only doubling down, but opening up a whole new can of worms and dragging everybody else into this. And it, as you said, Rob, it's brought sports governance, football governance, right into the spotlight from Spain to FIFA and to, to European football's governing body. Just one point on, on Spain. He's the head of the Spanish FA, which sort of is fed into by regional bodies. So there's regional little bosses like Rubiales. They have it in their power to remove him with a vote. They need a two-thirds vote and the guy's gone. They've said he should go after a week. And now, all they need to do is have a vote, but they don't want to do that. Why not? And that's it. How much have we seen in this last week or so that the men running the sport, as it is men at UEFA, FIFA, beyond, miss the moment to say the right thing at the right time, to show solidarity, to show empathy, particularly with... You know, women beyond this case that will probably, you know, will be moments will resonate in their own minds that they've experienced across the game. It was the women in football group in the UK just talking about how large a percentage of people have felt some form of sexual harassment within football. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that just look at the coverage that it's had all around the world. This case, I mean, it's been remarkable. Um, in the UK, I'm sure most people never even heard of Louis Rubiales beforehand, and yet it's sort of been news for a full week um news pages and sports pages so i think there is a sort of a realization that this is quite a big deal and um the other thing is that within spain itself it's opened a sort of pandora's box of other issues like allegations of uh, 
1.9 million euros that should have been spent on the referees that that being incorrectly diverted yeah because it does bring a sharper focus on his leadership and the way you know spanish football is run i mean and fifa itself so eventually after days of silence they did put out the statement announcing the suspend the suspension following the one about the case being opened but what we haven't had is any form of words from the leadership that recognize what a moment this is for football, how women in football are feeling, without prejudicing the case. Yeah, um, you could talk about FIFA. They've actually done something um, and eventually opened the case. And I think they wouldn't have if not for the public outcry. And that isn't how this stuff should work. Once that thing happens three yards away from the FIFA president in front of millions of people in the world, within hours, an investigation should start and the man should be suspended. It was kind of obvious what had happened. It took several days for anything to happen. And then you look at, look, he's a vice president of UEFA, European football's governing body, who have done everything almost to not comment at all on this guy. And again, it talks about this culture in football, about um, cloistered rooms, mates, all this type of kind of relationship stuff that whatever's happened, if it's one of our insiders, let's try and, 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 and protect him or at least not speak out against him. And there is, I guess something about loyalty which is a, which is good but in these circumstances it just feels really bizarre and it can seem almost i would say an inconvenience to some to have to be addressing this issue rather than actually stepping up i mean we are speaking around the uefa meetings here in monaco where the champs league and europa league and europa conference league draws are taking place a very much a men's season launch event and yes we've had the uefa president alexander Sheferin telling lakeith that it's inappropriate but how quiet have UEFA been for over a week to construct this form of words? Yeah, it was certainly surprising they didn't put out a sort of fairly generic statement saying that they, they sort of stand in support of, of, of women generally, um, even if it's not saying anything to prejudice the case. I think you'd have thought that was a sort of fairly basic requirement. What's also interesting is it seems to be a choice when to comment on cases that are under... Um, disciplinary action. Look, for example, there was a lot of comment around Super League. I think we'll remember that. that that's, that's been under a, um, a legal or disciplinary um, investigation for some time. It didn't stop all that outcry. Uh, Barcelona and the referee gate, there was a lot of comment around that. Um, and uh, and another, another situations, I think this idea that it's kind of sub-judice once it goes into disciplinary hands is is when you don't want to comment about uncomfortable issues or things you don't want to comment. And Rubiales, guys, before we kind of move on, he's got a huge rap sheet. Like this, this issue with um, Jenny Hermosa is just the latest. I mean, this guy was under investigation in Spain and accused of all sorts of things, ranging from you know clandestine deals with um, Saudi Arabia over competition and competition um, rights and TV rights. Uh, using, allegedly using Spanish FA funds for, for parties and for, for all sorts of other ancillary behavior, including um, allegedly uh, a holiday to New York with, with, with a partner. Um, this, this is a man who has been under the microscope and has been allowed to get away with it for so long. So perhaps that's where the sense of entitlement comes from. And it's a question of the balance between loyalty to someone you work with, might be friends with, versus why do you protect them so much to stay in their post you mean the right thing well that's a some 
you know, would view it in terms of why do you so desperately try to back someone that seems to have so many things against them in terms of their ability to lead? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't get the impression that uh, UEFA are desperate to keep Louis Rubiales in, in position at all. Um, I mean, if you look at his vote from the, from the his actually he was the only incumbent on the UEFA's executive committee whose vote fell uh, in at the last um, Congress in April went down from 47 votes to 40. So I don't think he's the most popular person. I think he's sort of viewed as a loose cannon. Um, there was an infamous meeting where he sort of went for um, Javier Tebas personally accused him of financial impropriety. And so I, I don't think there's a sort of, but I think there's a, it's, it's more of a sort of the way we do things at, you know, sport in sports bodies, is you know we we take a step back we don't you know we don't talk about difficult things i think that's a problem it's just a bizarre thing in the moment just step right back spain were exceptional in the world cup women's football even even if you're looking at it from a purely commercial perspective is the growing kind of arm of 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 football if we discount whatever weirdness is happening in saudi arabia like the, the the sort of sensible growth is in women's football if you look at it from that point of view and then to kind of just kind of sully it in this way it just seems bonkers from a from a governing body point of view as well even if you wanted to kind of unemotionally think about this you should be backing anything that is trying to damage that and this 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 issue is damaging yeah it means that we aren't focusing on what is a great moment of triumph for Spain. If we just think about it, it's their only their third ever World Cup. They're now champions at various youth levels in the world, now world champions for the first time. One of only two countries to have won the men's and women's World Cup after Germany. It's a huge moment that also shows the value of investing in women's football as well. Just, just one point on the leadership here. And again, for me, and I've said this kind of before, maybe a few times on this pod, is there not an argument? that the people who run women's football should be the people who really care about it. Again, this this is shown up in this situation because this is a really, these organisations run by mainly groups of middle-aged guys who've steeped in men's football and have had women's football bolted on. And it, it just feels like it's not the most important thing to them. If If the people who care about women's football could really take charge of the sport, maybe they would take action. Maybe this sort of thing doesn't happen in the same way. And certainly the fallout will be dealt with a lot better and a lot quicker. And we have asked various, we have asked female leaders to come on this pod, particularly in the UEFA world, and we've you know, been unable to. But they're in an organisation that is run by men. So they arguably, you could say these people, once they're in, they're, they're co-opted. These are people we've spoken to in the past and will privately be very critical. And now suddenly, once you're in the club, as has been the case historically, you are kind of, I don't know whether it's um, overt or whether you kind of self-consciously gag yourself when it comes to, to criticising, um, you know, how things are handled or the governing bodies. And recognising there are challenges in the media. It is very male-dominated, particularly the sports media that covers the world of FIFA and UEFA, that sports politics very often as well. Yeah, um, com- almost completely male-dominated. Um which is something a few years ago I thought there was a, there was a sort of more women doing it but um I think at the moment certainly you're right it is very much male dominated I think actually in part it's being open and accessible as well it doesn't actually seem like an area you can report on therefore there are very few of us do come and report on the world of UEFA and FIFA so even just 
having that engagement, holding press conferences even, which don't take place often is a way of then more journalists being having access to the leadership to ask questions as they see themselves as global politicians, as national political figures would do. Yeah, funny you should mention that. Marta, um, I remember, in the, in the, happened to be her last press conference because Brazil got knocked out of the World Cup uh, the next day when they failed to beat Jamaica. It was a very emotional press conference, and she made that point when she looked into the room and she reflected on her career. There were a lot of female Brazilian journalists in the room, and she, she made the point. She said, look how far women's football has come to this point, because when I started, none of you would have been in the room at the time. So there is, there is that change. But there is female leadership at FIFA, for example. I don't know about you guys. I haven't seen anything from, I guess, the most senior woman in world football, Fatma Samura, the secretary general, or Sarai Berman, who, after the incident, several days later, was on social media toasting this great, successful World Cup. Um, you know, the, the, the hard work starts now and all of this stuff. If she's busy on social media doing all of these things, should we not be hearing from the chief female football officer or the chief of women's football at FIFA? Because she was there in the stadium. She might have been being on the podium. It's like this thing hadn't happened. And then suddenly these disciplinary um, processes begin and then you have people saying, well, we're doing something now. That, that gap, these are senior female leaders. They should be talking as well. I suppose she could see her role in that moment as being to promote the women's game and to promote the players to not allow you know, the actions of Rubiales to detract from that. So she wants to sort of maintain that celebration of what was a, a transformational World Cup of growth. But you're living in a cave, Rob. I mean, let's be honest, you can't pretend something hasn't happened. This is a serious event. This is a serious person who was in charge of the women's game globally. It was in front of millions of people. Again, you know, I, I might be wrong here, but it'd be really good to hear from a leader to speak very explicitly about how wrong what happened is. Well, I did get a chance to interview Gianni Infantino on the day before the World Cup final. That was partly in response to what happened the previous day in Sydney. So... To me, he was talking about how men shouldn't impose their vision on women's football, wanting to ensure that actually women do play a role in that. And, you know, it was good to do the interview, particularly after I'd done some of the early reporting, raising how he'd left the tournament, uh, partly during the group stage. So his engagement was certainly something that was uh, way welcome. What had happened at a previous day in Sydney, he'd given this speech which did create a backlash where he talked about women needing to pick the right battles to convince us men what we have to do and to push the door, which actually seemed to highlight how it is men running the sport. Yeah, how did he respond when he sort of you know, pointed out the fact that actually a lot of people were quite offended by what he had said and saying you know, women have to push the door open rather than... Um, did he, did he claim that he was misunderstood? Or? Yeah, he said he'd been misunderstood. People were using the comments almost to create something against him and defending you know, his own record and now growing the game and, uh, and, and what happened. I mean, he's always used the fact that he's a father of four daughters. Pretty much every time he opens his mouth about women's football. And then the language that follows tends to kind of irritate a lot of the followers of women's football. You'd think you'd, you'd kind of learn. I think the idea of just mentioning, yeah, I've got a voice in this because I've got four daughters, isn't, isn't the best way to, to start every conversation. Yeah, so what he actually 
said and just give an expanded version of those quotes it was a tv interview that's there to be seen he said what i would like to see is indeed women to tell us how women's football should be rather than men imposing what they think women should be often copying men's football and maybe copying in a bad way Tarek, that's something you've talked about often on this pod um infatina went on to say we want to pioneer as far as fifa is concerned and um, say they're very transparent and then he went on to say we know that not all of us everywhere in the world are as open as together with women, everyone together, all those who have the same philosophy. Things have to change further still after the battles we have made to change many things. Uh, let's fight. So that's what he was saying. But then we've not heard from him at the critical moment when his actual voice would probably get an even bigger audience when you've got protests in the streets and concerns about not only a, a federation head, but let's remember this Spain team that won the Women's World Cup were without 12 players who refused to be part of the setup. 15 initially quit, three um, returned in protest against um, Jorge Vilda, the Spain coach, who some of the conditions that he's alleged to have subjected the players to were absolutely horrific. Yeah, it's, it's amazing that the backdrop to, to the victory, you kind of went through that list and this team still managed to, to play exceptional football and win despite the coach in a way or despite that relationship with the coach but again you know just this moment it calls for leadership doesn't it it calls for some one or or people in charge to really speak up and and be emphatic about what needs to happen what's gone wrong etc there are there are these kind of crises all around women's football if if you think about it and and it just it requires leadership if you honestly if you ask me just to double down on this i think Women's women's football should be spun away from 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 FIFA and from UEFA. It should be run by a, a separate organisation that runs it. And if you're talking about funding, you could get 10 or 20 percent levy from the billions that FIFA and UEFA makes over 10 or 50 years in order to keep this organisation funded and just let them get on with running a wonderful game, not to sort of have that be at the back of the queue with 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 the men's game. And the issue still is the fact that the ban on women's football by the English FA for 50 years until what 1971 had an effect all around the world with effectively funding removed and quasi bans in a you know, place like Australia even which naturally prohibited the growth of the game FIFA not starting a women's world cup until 1991 so is is being forced to play catch up which is why actually it needs that extra lift at, the, at this stage yeah I also think it's strange for example we don't know where the next women's world cup is going to be yet I mean I think I think there's four four bids. There's a joint one from Netherlands, Belgium, and Germany, Brazil, South Africa, and another joint one from the USA and Mexico. It's a bit 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 strange, isn't it? We don't know that. Well, yeah, because it these are big tournaments. We saw in Australia, a 32 team tournament, all the infrastructure required. Again, Martin, it feels an afterthought, and it shouldn't be. It should be the most important thing. Yeah, and it's all about raising interest as well in those countries if you don't have a long build-up period you minimize the chance to actually take advantage of hosting a tournament because you get to make initiatives to sort of grow the game uh, throughout the, uh, the the subsequent years also limits the countries that can host it because they need to have the infrastructure effectively already in place so we do await just what will happen to the future of Vilda, to the future of rubiales in this scandal that has had an impact way beyond football and while we've been away from the pod in a few weeks of course it's been all about Saudi Arabia particularly in the men's game 
and just about the influx of cash to Saudi with so many more transfers into the country, just showing that they do want to you know, dominate world football and certainly wanting the World Cup as well. But when will they get the Men's World Cup? That's, that's probably their bidding aspirations. 2030 looks off the table, but how soon do you think they could have the, the World Cup? Well, they are um, actively seeking support now for a 2034 World Cup bid. Um, they've approached people in Europe, some of the top figures in, in football there. Um, I think they initially suggested that they would, if they if they didn't bid for 2013, left the way open to Spain, Portugal and Morocco's joint bid, would they support them for 2034? I think the sort of failed in that sort of attempt to do a deal. But the fact that now they're actively campaigning um, for 2034. And there's also a suggestion that FIFA might hold the vote next year for the 2034, 2030 World Cup, also have it jointly with the 2034 tournament um, and awarding two World Cups at the same Congress. That would be something that the the Olympics have done. Um, does that look like 2034 is sort of nailed on for Saudis? This is the world of no losers, isn't it? In sports bidding, we're seeing it with UEFA and Euro 2028 and 32. There was uh, contested bids, but then they put Turkey and Italy together for 32 to leave the path clear for 28 for the UK and Ireland. So this is FIFA trying to wrap up a few Men's World Cup hosts, maybe. Well, remember the last time we had a joint announcement for a FIFA or for FIFA World Cups 2018 and 2022. That went well, Qatar and Russia. We ended up with uh, the supposed FIFA scandal and various people being led away. Um, let's hope the same thing doesn't happen here. But Martin, you, you said that Saudi Arabia are already on manoeuvres, and that's been very, very clear. Not a day goes by when some sort of announcement of a MOU or a memorandum of understanding with a, a regional governing body or, or, or an FA uh, isn't announced. Now, Here's, I'll go through this quick list. It's not that quick, so let me apologize. But this is the list in the last few months. So they signed with um, Oceania, the OFC, the, the smallest FIFA confederation, 11 members. Then they went to Syria. You've got Ecuador, CAF, the African uh, governing body, 54 members there. Then a separate one with Ghana, India, Iran, Singapore, Croatia, Nepal, Botswana, Brunei, you know, uh, I forgot Bangladesh and the Maldives as well there. So if, you, if you're looking for World Cup uh, votes, Saudi Arabia are well on course on the way to, to, to getting those. I, d I don't know what those MOUs actually give the counterparty. Yeah, what, what they intended for. Well, I suppose um, MOUs, you know, development funds possibly in the future. Do you think development money? Tarek? Is there something that Saudi Arabia has a lot of that might help these football federations, Rob? Well, absolutely, yeah. Well, cash and they all have votes, don't they? They do. And, yeah, I suppose, isn't this part of what Saudi's modus operandi is for getting involved in football? The fact we've spent all this time talking about Saudi and football, obviously, perhaps some of the, again, we move on from the other issues that people have concerns about Saudi Arabia for and the conversation, you know, shifts to football. Well, I think that's you know that's the whole strategy, isn't it? Um, you know, soft soft power, sports washing, whatever you want to call it. Um, I suppose one issue which will have to be confronted is when you would play the 2034 World Cup. 
this, the calendar is, is it due to be we haven't got the calendar yet we don't know what's happening with it but can you play it in the summer? No, I don't think you can. So that would be another Winter World Cup. You know, talking about these tournaments, and he makes you start talking 11 years ahead, which I suppose when we were talking in 2010 about 2022 seems some far distant proposition. And here we are looking so far ahead. Here's one. Who will be Saudi Arabia manager then in 2034? Because they do have a new manager at the moment, Roberto Mancini. And what a decision that was for him to walk out on Italy, the reigning European men's champions, to take another job, to abandon his country. Incredible, incredible story. And talking to our friend here from Gazzetta della Sport, Fabio Licari. Um, and in Italy, the story has become a scandal because Roberto Mancini, who had led Italy famously to, to winning the Euros, uh, the last time they were held, they didn't qualify for the World Cup, but he was set to stay as Italy manager. He announced that he was stepping down because he was tired. And these things can happen. It's a tough job. But then suddenly, just two days after leaving for fatigue, he says he got an offer from Saudi Arabia and he had to take it. Now, Italian media and the Italian public are taking that, well, taking that as you, you would expect, this this mysterious offer just when you're at your most tiredest, Martin. Shades of uh, Don Reavy, um for our older listeners um, who who left the England job, didn't he, and caused, was, was never forgiven in many quarters for, for, for going to the Gulf. But um, yeah. That was, that was the United Arab Emirates he went to in the 70s. And I suppose maybe it was a different time in world football then. We now see, you know, whether it's England being managed by you know, Swede, Italians, uh, the England women's team, but a very successful Dutch manager in Serena Wiegmann. So maybe there's that thing that doesn't exist anymore, that expectation of uh, almost like a loyalty beyond uh, um, club teams. Yeah, but when you're kind of the coach of a team like Italy and you're an Italian person, there is kind of a weird national figurehead symbol element to it, which is slightly different from quitting a club to, to joining. And with, 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 with Mancini, it was even more personal with the FA. To understand, he was on holiday just before leaving with the you know Italian FA president, Mr. Gravina, and his wife. And that relationship might not be um, as good as it was uh, under those on the beaches of, of, of Sardinia or wherever they were. Yeah, and here's one I was thinking about. Gareth Southgate is England manager, who has talked about Saudi in, in recent weeks and the growth there. You know, if he was suddenly offered a job in Saudi Arabia, how it would be viewed if he walked out on England? And I would say you don't really see him linked with the big Premier League jobs, for, for instance, that he could, say, walk into, despite all his achieved with England. So actually, if he was offered some huge job out there, why not take it? Since maybe he might say he doesn't get the respect often, particularly after England went out of the World Cup in Qatar. It was almost like his own standing as a coach being questioned. Rob, you said if he's offered a huge job out there, what do you mean? What is a huge job out there? Because at the end of the day, I would argue, you know, coaching England is a higher profile than coaching Saudi Arabia or even coaching any of those Saudi football clubs. So what you're saying is, is essentially, is he willing to give up that role, the profile of being the England manager for several large suitcases of cash? I think we need to be explicit here. But also, he wouldn't have that England job forever, even 
after Qatar that calls for him to go and he'll lead England in, as it stands into Euro 24. So there's a certain shelf life. He's already served the England manager job pretty much longer than many others who've had that post as well. And the clubs are grown now. There is a status for managing Al Hilal who have won many Asian Champions League titles. They are a power within the region, just not in how we're viewing football through Europe. They've definitely got a status. I mean, I've seen four or five match reports now on the Daily Mail's website, so that really tells you that there is a huge following all of a sudden for Saudi football or or, or, or something else. I don't know. Also, Marker in Spain are, are carrying live um, updates from the Saudi league. Is there a huge audience for this stuff? Often the papers are monitoring the online traffic and responding to it by producing those pieces. I don't think there are. I don't think there are. I think I think there's very little interest generally. I mean, I think some websites will, you know, perhaps have incentives to carry reports. Um, it wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't be the first time things that happen like that. And um, there, there is, I think, a, a a growing practice now of not just Saudis but lots of sports. Uh, you know, basically boosting their profile by providing content free or even um, having it sponsored. And there was a great story, again, <laughs> already conflict at Itihad because Benzema signed for huge amounts of money, apparently doesn't fit Nuno Spirito de Santo's style and might be on his way out. Now, imagine paying off that contract. If anyone can, though, I guess it's these guys. Yeah, obviously we are adopting quite a Eurocentric view on these things and also quite a sports politics view where we might be able to name some of the council members at FIFA sometimes but not some of the squad members at uh, even Roma or uh, PSG maybe. No, yeah, you're right. Um, there is one issue though I think which is, is going to be quite an interesting one in the next few years is you know all these you know, Benzema, Ronaldo, all these star players are getting big amounts of money to go. It'd be interesting to see there has been a bit of a an issue with Saudi Arabian clubs not paying their local players. And that, I think, is something to keep an eye on because if there is going to be any sort of, sort of governance around, um, you know, not, I, don't, I think financial fair play is probably not likely to come into Saudi Arabian football anytime soon. But if there are going to be issues around whether these players are paid, I think that, that could be problems. And FIFA intervene in these cases, don't they? Yeah, so this is really interesting. Before this sudden splurge over the summer Saudi Arabian clubs were buying foreign players and almost the entire league ha was facing uh, international transfer bans certainly the big four clubs were uh, at the start of the summer so even when they were announcing Benzema and, and all these others and having their photos taken at that point of signing they could not register them it was only until the 11th hour when these debts were cleared and by that, we mean um, transfer fees owed to clubs um, in, in Brazil and elsewhere for players and also for um, unpaid wages. That, that's, now been, that's now been cleared. But yeah, this has been a big issue for Saudi. Yeah, um, and it'd be interesting to see how those cases are pursued. Well, the fact we've talked so much now about Saudi Arabia, we've talked about investment now, barely even got into MLS where Lionel Messi's been making his impact in recent weeks, uh, although largely in clip form, who's watching full matches uh, there. Doesn't this all suck some of the oxygen out of other sports? How much have we been talking about the World Athletic Championships? Yes, in certain markets where there's been success or maybe 
Germany, where they've had no medal at all at the World Athletics Championships, which has been pretty incredible. And where is the standing in the sport? Although the American star, Noah Lyles, would say actually what he's achieved should be recognised. They are the world champions when they win at uh, the track championships. Unlike, he says, at uh, things like NBA, where they shouldn't be trying to call themselves world champions uh, when they're not. Yeah, I think do baseball, they have world champions as well, World Series, exactly. So uh, um, you, can th- you can see why he's taking that point of view. I mean, I do think the World Championships in athletics has sort of lost some of its sort of profile, probably even when it, when it, when it became a biennial event. Um, I think, it, you know, if you, if you have it more often, then you, you, there's, there's obviously more world champions. It's not such a big thing. Um, nevertheless, I think uh, Budapest um, showed that it's a growing place for sport. Victor Orban is obviously putting resources there. He's offering sports governing bodies zero tax to relocate there. We, I think we talked about swimming bodies going there. So, um, and Seb Coe, the World Athletics president, was, he was singing his praises after after the, the World Championships there. So interesting to see what happens to Hungary and Budapest in the future. Yeah, sport as a political tool is, is you know, old as time. And we're, we're seeing that now. We've just spent 10, 15 minutes talking about Saudi Arabia. We had the, the Qatar World Cup, Russia of long used sport and, and Victor Orban. Uh, is, is following that playbook and sport some of these sports you know we're not talking about football need a lot of money they're, they're not as, as rob used the word you know football taking the oxygen out of the global sports conversation when it comes to um, you know other sports they need to find funders and a lot of these countries do that i must say noah lyle's intervention things like that aren't that uh, you know are quite good for the sport say something controversial you draw a lot of attention he got a load of engagement from those you know, millionaire NBA players who I think were, were, were a little bit miffed by what he said and were engaging with him on, on, on social media. And, and he's, he's right, isn't he? I mean, it is. How many, you know, he says, the, he kind of said the entire world's at the World Championships and, and sort of North America and, and, and Canada are, uh, are at the basketball and the baseball. But they were saying, well, we're the best leagues in the world. And then someone countered that by saying, well, the Premier League is the best football league in the world. It doesn't say Manchester City are the world champions because they won the Premier League. And let's just recognise what Lyles did. He won the men's 100 and 200 metre world titles. First man to do so since Usain Bolt in uh, 2015. As Martin gets momentarily distracted by one of our listeners. Uh, David Gill, the UEFA treasurer, is a, a, a regular listener to the pod. We invited him on. Um, he, he's politely declined. Oh, or has he? Has he? <laughs> <laughs> Always good to have loyal listeners uh, going by. Uh, back to Noel Lars, what he said. What he said was perfect for sport very often. Something that's a controversy that is absolutely ultimately harmless but creates a debating and talking point that lifts it beyond just the track action because no one's harmed by him sort of challenging what is a real world champion or not no absolutely um and yeah all 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 the better for talk and profile and i'm sure world athletics weren't complaining were they they found themselves given the sort of profile that they perhaps had hadn't had until that point and certainly in the states 
I always think when someone's going into a press conference, you know, something that isn't an accountability press conference, maybe even so, always have one thing interesting to say. One line, I don't know whether you pre-planned it, something that just sounds a spark. So it was actually ahead of the uh, the Women's World Cup final, just a question I asked to Millie Bright as England captain about the historic moment. And she ended up calling it did the game of our lives ultimately doesn't mean anything, but it means everything. It creates a, a catchphrase that allows everyone to latch on, particularly you need for headlines or TV and radio bulletins, a bit of a, a bit of a soundbite. Sport is a narrative, isn't it? Like you need a, a storyline, an arc with, with all of these things. And when, when they provide them, it's better coming from, from the mouth of a, of, a, of, a, of a sportsman. Rob, if the listeners have any idea whether this is a world championship in in america or not what should they do how do they contact us well they can always message us on x facebook instagram threads at sport unlocked and you can always email us sportunlockpod at gmail.com and if you want to set up an anonymous address and message us then <laughs> we'll take all that feedback to see as well and any suggestions and the most important thing having had one listener particularly eagerly awaiting the pod is if you hit subscribe then you can think probably set a notification even in whichever pod platform you are on so we land automatically on your smart device yeah well enjoy that mr gill and mrs gill as well excellent thank you everyone for listening and goodbye for now